The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Intelligent Investor, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And Alan, you're just taking a breath, taking a, having a rest after your media tartary all over the country with your quarterly essay media the last tartary. week. You've been the everyone, everywhere man, haven't you? You're into double figures for media interviews. You packed out readings last night at the in launch. Hawthorne at the launch. So, so how are you feeling? How's it gone? What's it been like? It's pretty good. I mean, I, the, the uh, response has been favourable and um, uh, it's a topic that everyone's interested in talking about. Um, so, so I'm glad I did it. The quarterly essay, The Great Divide... Australia's housing mess and how to fix it. I'm glad I did it. They asked me about nine months ago, would you like to do a quarterly essay on housing? And I kind of thought about it for a few days and said, yep, okay, I'll do that. Um, I had to take some time off from work to to, to finish it um, because I decided that, I, I mean, what I, what I wanted, the reason I wanted to do it was partly because my kids have all just bought houses and they're kind of struggling. It's really been terrible. Mm. And... Um, I thought, well, uh, I want to do it for them to some extent, but I also wanted to nail down precisely what happened because mm-hmm. I think there's been so much kind of uh, fairly loose talk about housing affordability and w- without, without being precisely, pre- precise enough, in my view, about what exactly has happened and also why it happened and, and what's the cause of it. And I thought that if, if I could establish what had happened exactly and why it had happened, then the solutions might in a sense, reveal themselves. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of what what happened. So uh, I did a lot of history. I, I mean, I kind of, I think that the attitudes to land in Australia that was formed uh, when, when Australia was colonised and the land was simply um, dished out by governors uh, and taken over by free settlers who just kind of said, oh, this is my, now my land, even though obviously it was there, it was occupied by somebody else beforehand, using the doctrine of discovery, which is the um, the idea that you know if if a colonial power comes along and puts the stake in the ground and says this is ours now, then it is right. Um, so Captain uh, James Cook did that. Um, they started dishing out land. Uh, John Batman became the only person in those days to buy land from the original inhabitants, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne, um, and he paid them a long list of items, and then that was overturned by the colonial government because mm. we couldn't, couldn't have people actually having a buy land off the Aborigines. That's, can't have that. Mm. And so, look, I went through all that because uh, I think it's important to establish that uh, the attitude to land in Australia is that there's tons of it and it's free, and then the gold rush uh, changed that again because suddenly the 
the population of Australia uh, exploded. There was a baby boom, and when the the people born in in the 1860s turned into adults and started looking for houses, suddenly there wasn't enough land, <laughs> and it was uh, the price uh, actually went through the roof because it was scarce. And the most brilliant move by the Victorians was to declare our independence from New South Wales just a few weeks before gold was discovered in 1851. Correct. And then Melbourne became the richest city in the world and one of the great Victorian architecture cities thanks to that magnificent gold rush. Um, But for the purposes of the the discussion about housing, what happened was that the... uh, the the increase in population led to a scarcity of land. And so suddenly the price went up and it became the way to get wealthy. And everyone in the, in the late 1880s were describing land not as free but as something that you could speculate with um, and get rich, which is true. And then there was the crash and so on. So anyway, and then, and then the public housing uh, uh, after the war, the Commonwealth Housing Commission the growth of public housing, the death of public housing under Menzies and Fraser and so on. So, look, I wanted to understand, I wanted to understand the history myself and to write it. Um, and, uh, and I think you look, you've made lots of great points. I think the zoning one I hadn't quite realised, you know, the English nationalisation of zoning versus in Australia where it's with the states who then devolve it to the councils who get captured by the local NIMBYs and, and, uh, and all this sort of stuff. And the immigration data was great as well. Um, I, I, I did find it interesting that you really honed in on the halving of the capital gains discount uh, in back end of 1999 as being a big driver because it certainly did take off as, you know, there's 12 graphs across the 86 pages of this essay and, and the one that really jumped out at me was, is that, that house price jump after the year 2000. Um, and obviously the halving of the capital gains tax was a factor, but I, I personally reckon you might have overplayed that in terms of the factors, and I think probably just the general wealth effect of China booming. You know, we had a hundred years of terms of trade decline in Australia up until the year 2000, and all of a sudden, wheat, wool, iron ore, everything went through the roof, and we had this massive wealth effect plus the immigration effect plus the tax effect, and then cheap interest rates, cheap money. Um, and then it just it just took off and it all compounded on each other. And the other one is super. Like compulsory super only started at 1% in 1997-98. It got to a trillion dollars by 2000. It's now over $3 trillion. People feel richer because of super. So they're prepared to borrow more to get into housing because they got all that super backing. Hence, we've got the biggest amount of household debt in the world at uh, so three trillion in mortgages. I didn't talk about super. I think that's an interesting point, Stephen. I hadn't thought of that, uh, to be honest. I mean, the, the, the reason I kind of uh, talked a bit about the capital gains tax discount was uh, that it's quite clear that house prices did start rising more quickly than incomes and GDP from the year 2000. So house prices from that year house prices started rising at 6% per annum compound versus 3% per annum compound before that, which is roughly what uh, incomes were rising at. So it's from that year that house prices started to get away from incomes. Mm. And so I was just trying to say, well, okay, why was that? What happened in 2000? And there's only one thing that happened, which was that in September 1999, they halved the capital gains tax. Mm. And, and the thing is that the other graph that was important in relation to that was the amount of negative gearing tax deductions yeah. um, 
Before but and after 2000. For losses, so be- yeah. It went through the roof. It went through the yeah. roof because, yeah. uh, uh, because what I'm saying is that the capital gains tax discount made negative gearing really work. Yeah. And, and, it's not, and it was, I think, largely psychological because before 1999, um, capital gains tax was adjusted for inflation. Mm. So you got to take away the CPI for the period that you held the asset. Mm. Uh, before you start, you know, had to calculate the, the tax on the capital gain. Um, the thing is that people don't really understand inflation and CPI adjustments and so on. They didn't know they, they didn't get it what it was. But everyone understands a discount. Yeah, fifty percent off, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, so suddenly, psychologically, it's it's tremendously attractive. Yeah, uh, and everyone gets. But, everyone and, but got for that it. to work, for negative gearing to work, Alan, you have to be paying a lot of income tax. To really get the value of it, and that is the for me that's the big driver is that we had enormous bracket creep through the wealth effect of the boom post two thousand. I mean, now income tax is at three hundred and twenty billion this year, and people are still complaining about the the stage three tax tax cuts. People are getting smashed by high income tax rates, where thirty or forty cents of the dollar of every extra dollar you make has got to be paid to the government. So they get into the negative gearing and stuff to get that down, just like they go crazy into super to get that down. So there's, and the other rort that's in there, obviously, is the franking credits rort. And that's why I was a bit surprised that you were saying that we stopped being a nation of shareholders in 2000 and we started to be a nation of obsessive property speculators, when I would say, actually, that the, the, the capital gains discount also applied to shares. And in 2001, they also introduced the ridiculous franking credits rort, which is now running at $6 billion a year. And I'll give you some stats that shareholding numbers have, have continued to go through the roof. I mean, AFIC, which is our biggest listed investment company, had 67,000 shareholders in 2003. It's now got 164,000 shareholders. And Flight Centre had 22,000 shareholders in 2019. It's now got 105,000 shareholders. So I think we've become, we've always been a nation of shareholders. And I don't think there was a displacement effect. I just think there was an overall boom and money flooded into every tax rort out there. Super, franking credits, negative gearing. They were all there and they all boomed at the same time. And um, no, the fair, here, fair point. Here, here we are. They should probably have uh, got you to write this thing, no, Stephen, no, Alan, I, rather than me. I was happy no, no. to pay $28 this morning for, for 28,000 words uh, at my local news agent. And look, it's a great, it's a, it, it's a great read. I mean, when, when Raf Epstein... Gave it such a plug, saying he found it compelling. I thought for, for, for me that was the best endorsement <laughs> it was, it was you could great. get. It was so, very good. Uh, so no, look, well, we need well to done. move on. We've got a lot of questions, but we just quickly—it's uh, the last day of the AGM season, and I don't know why you're here well, instead I of attending be, I, I multiple giving, AGMs, Stephen. I should be giving Blue Bet some stick right now, but I who will, the hell's Blue Bet? Blue Bet's a them. dodgy little gambling company, but I will get back for the Betmakers AGM at twelve o'clock. When I left this morning, there had already been 24 chairman's addresses lodged with the ASX. So it's the busiest day of the year for AGMs. There will be over 50. And just to give you an example of the rubbish that comes out on the last day of the season, just as I was leaving, I I read the Retail Food Group chairman's address. Now, Retail Food Group, you know, it's a well-known company. They own Crust, Donut King, Brumbies, Gloria Jeans. I mean, we could be having the Money Cafe in a Gloria Jeans Cafe. This is a company that's got $445 million of accumulated losses. It's lost another $9 million last year. It's got a market cap of only $137 million, yet it claims in its audited balance sheet that it's got net assets of $200 million. So this is a company that has blown up half a billion dollars selling coffee, donuts and croissants 
to, and pizzas to Australians. And that is the sort of rubbish you get on the last day of the AGM season where they come out, I hope no one notices, and they come out, same on the last day of the profit season. So anyway, look, my it'd highlights... Help. It'd help if any of their restaurants were any bloody good. Well, yes, that's right. You know. But uh, anyway, look, my, for me, the, the highlights of the AG, uh, a couple of highlights of the AGM season was record protest votes on remuneration. So Qantas... 83% against their remuneration report. Harvey Norman yesterday, 82% against their remuneration report, albeit Jerry is not allowed to vote because he's overpaid himself. And Link Market Services, 83% against their remuneration report. And this is what I really liked. So Link runs a lot of AGMs. They count the votes. And at their AGM, the CEO Vivak Batia's incentive grant was approved by 50.6% of the vote. And who was counting the votes? Just Link. <laughs> <laughs> so his own employees were counting the votes in a knife edge. Does he get the, the bonus shares or not? Which for me is another reminder that we need the Australian Electoral Commission to take over running corporate elections, I think, just like uh, they run union elections. I think we need Donald Trump out of this because that election was stolen. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, it's like Origin Energy. You know, they, they suspend their meeting and they, they say we're going to defer it and then they go and look at who's voted against and they're ringing up and tell, trying to get them to change their votes. I mean, imagine you're doing that in a political election where you go, oh, it looks like we've lost that, so we're going to delay the election for two weeks and we're going to start ringing up people who we know have voted against us because it's not a secret ballot and get them to change their vote. Meanwhile, the share register's frozen, so anyone who buys in now can't get in there and, and vote more shares like Aussie Super. So... Anyway, but... Uh, it's an absolute disgrace, Absolute Stephen. disgrace. Now, did absolute you want to say anything disgrace. about inflation, Alan, before well, we get I, on to our 30 questions? Just that I, I had a piece on the ABC News on Sunday night predicting that inflation would fall and that there'd be no more rate hikes, and uh, that is exactly what happened. Inflation fell to 4.9% for the year, and uh, it's well on the way down. Uh, there's no need to have any more rate hikes, Michelle Bullock. Forget about it. Uh, yes. Did you notice, by well, the way... There'll be a lot more noise, Michelle. Did you notice, by the way, that we have a POMI uh, deputy governor yes. now? Yes. You happy with that? No idea. The colonialists are I've never still heard having influence? And Andrew Hauser, or Hauser. Yeah. Well, H-A-U-S-E-R. I mean, they had to get cultural change. There's only one monopoly central bank in Australia. So if you want to get cultural change for somebody who knows anything about central banking, you can't just go down to the Commonwealth Bank or Macquarie and say, hey, have you got a deputy governor in so there? I had, a, I had a picture of him on the news... Right, the other <laughs> night on the day that it was announced, and the director, the ABC director, sidled up to me afterwards and said, "He says that picture was amazing. That was the most English-looking person I've ever seen." Actually, the funniest story I heard was that I won't name the particular governor, but he he came to Australia and he was playing tennis at one of the snooty Melbourne tennis clubs. I won't say which one because it'll give it away. And the president told me that he had his shorts on back to front. So oh. the. Re- the governor of the Bank of England, when playing tennis, couldn't even put his shorts on the right way, let alone run monetary policy properly during the GFC. Oh, that's not a good sign. No, no. But anyway, we'll trust this English bloke to tell us how... I reckon Michelle has his shorts on the right way around. <laughs> I'm backing Michelle Bullock as well. All these people monstering her, I think that... Uh, no, no, she's a ripper. Oh, we probably love... one too many rate rises now with the inflation figures. I think you can argue that she went one too far, but as long as she doesn't go up to 17% like Keating did... You know, as long as that's it, what's an extra 25 basis points between friends in the scheme of things? Now, um, before we get to questions, quick word from our sponsor. 
InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and the Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Okay. Simon says, Simon says, uh, listening from the jungles of Costa Rica, for God's sake. That's fantastic. Hello over there, Simon. I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope you're staying away from those boa constrictors. <laughs> uh, I've been investing directly in equities for more than 40 years, take advantage of all DRPs and hold a range of about 30 stocks. Can you explain how computer share, link market services and Automic fit into the share ownership scheme? Love your podcast, find it informative and entertaining. Your combined knowledge is astounding. A relaxed presentation on absolute joy. Thank you very much. I can't believe, Simon, you've obviously been hiding out in the jungle for 40 years. If you, after 40 years of investing, you haven't worked out that Computer Share, Link Market Services and Automic and Boardroom and the others, they just run the share registry. So they will pay out the dividends, they'll buy and sell shares, they'll get your address, they'll manage your bank account details, they run a good AGM, they do hybrid AGMs, they print. They have their own printing plants, they print a lot of annual reports. So, you know, Computer Share is one of the five to mention, greatest Australian success stories. They do this for companies all over the world, confirming, Alan, that we are a great nation of shareholders, not just a great nation of negatively geared property All right, all right, don't go on about it. <laughs> Now, Mr. Everywhere, Alan, you're so everywhere that AI apparently is using you for scams. Peter has said, I've just read a report by Alan Kohler about Matt Shervington and Sam Kerr. It looks identical to the AI scams featuring other personalities. Is this a scam, Alan? Well, have you interviewed Matt Shervington and Sam Kerr (laughs) in your media tartary? No, no, that's on my to-do list. Right. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So there are advertising scams. No, it's not advertising. There's actually stories appearing. There are articles with my byline by Alan Kohler, which are about things that I know nothing about, which such as Matt Shervington and Sam Kerr. So you should do a Twiggy and threaten to sue ChatGPT and Sam Altman, you know, like Twiggy suing Facebook and say, stop well, no, I think appropriating they're, they're my, it's, my it's really Mark Zuckerberg. No, it's Mark Zuckerberg. I think it's mainly on... I think it's on Facebook. Um, yeah. And although Elon Musk's Twitter. Yeah. Anyway, but I mean, these, uh, these guys. Just beware, you know. it's a scam. So, um, Hugh saying that uh, do what? we think Australians should be able to vote on behalf of the shares they own in their super funds? And given the funds own roughly a third of the ASX, do you think this would le- result in better governance or would millions of non technical voters risk lower returns? So, on average, uh, super funds will often hand out their voting power to other fund managers or like Perpetual and, and the likes or they will do it in-house. So Aussie Super with their circa 18% stake in Origin, they are controlling virtually all of those votes. And you can invest in industry funds and own some of the, the control some of the votes because they've tried to discourage people from going into SMSFs by creating products that give you continuing power. And Aussie Super have just banned those in their member direct scheme from buying any more Origin shares because it will play into the corporate control situation, potentially getting them to more than 20% because they are the umbrella organisation through which retail punters... So hang on, are you saying that... Some super funds allow you to vote your shares 
that the super fund well, owns, allowed, on, owns they, on your behalf. Yes, yes. There's, there's, there's different little schemes and how, how it can work, including participating in, in capital raisings. But uh, overall, there is a crisis in retail turnout, you know, where only 4,000 Qantas shareholders voted out of 178,000. So it's, you know, there was only 2,000 flight centre shareholders who voted out of 105,000. So anything to get retail shareholders off their backsides and voting their stock um, would be a good thing. So we would certainly encourage that. Uh, okay, who, who Eric. Have we got next? Eric, you're always getting down on the RBA and the fact that interest rates are a blunt tool to cool demand. I agree with you because interest rates don't discriminate. This is a long question. I don't think I'll read it all. Uh, uh, while you're technically correct, it's hypocritical, don't you think? These subsidies are specifically designed... What subsidies? They have a go at Jim Chalmers subsidies simply because they're inherently inflationary. The subsidies are designed for people who really afford to... Uh, for critical things like childcare. In effect, the subsidies are able to deliver the accuracy that the RBA cannot because they reverse the cost pressures in some areas for people that need it. So what do you want, Alan? A luxury tax? Super contribution? Uplift? I've listened to the Money yeah. Cafe for over a year and I'm yet to hear your five-point plan on the best combination of monetary yeah. and fiscal okay, policy. Okay, so give us, the, give us the non-interest rate tools you would deploy to curb inflation, Alan. You've got 30 seconds. Uh, I would have a... Uh, either the Reserve Bank itself or another statutory body that was independent of the government that had the power to move taxes up or down by 5% uh, for economic uh, purposes, not to do with government revenue, right? Okay, so, so it you've made the structural change. Now give us the policy detail, Mr Alan Cole, the Governor of the Reserve Bank. Which taxes would you put up and down right now? Income tax. Okay, so you'd be taxing the wealthy more That's now right. as part of the curbing inflation I wouldn't strategy. do GST because ta GST hurts the poor more. Um, I would uh, simply move income taxes up or down by 5%, all of them, all, all uh, brackets, because that, is, that continues the progressive income tax system that we currently have. I, um, would, I would go more on the big-ticket excise targetable products like tobacco, grog, petrol. So things that are ab above and beyond the GST net. Well, yeah, but so petrol's a great one because it, it really, you know... But that really hurts uh, poor people. Well... You know, I mean, tobacco, fine. Yeah, but at the same okay. time, you know, and medicine subsidies, I think... And Jim Chalmers was talking on the radio this morning about how they've, they've done increased medicine subsidies to take the pressure off cost of living. And I think that, that has been a good policy. No, but a whole, to make the, whole problem with, the whole problem with interest rates is that it, is that it hits people who are already struggling. Yeah. Um, the borrowers, and particularly the borrowers who are stretched. Yeah. That's kind of the problem yeah, I mean, with monetary policy. City of Manningham, and if you're trying to get around million, that, 90 million in the bank and we're going to make 3.2 million in interest this year. It's our fourth biggest revenue right. line now. So we so, are making out like bandits thanks to, thanks to so Michelle Bullock putting up What you rates. wouldn't do is replace that with another measure that uh, hurts people who are struggling, such as pet putting petrol prices up. So I don't think petrol prices is the answer. I do think income taxes is the answer because it's progressive. Yeah, I uh, think, but the trouble I think is government spending is the answer, like the ridiculous overspend on infrastructure at the moment, which is causing inflation of labour and, and materials all over the shop. Anyway, so come to think of it, that's, I think that, that giving the power to move taxes up and down to the Reserve Bank is a really good idea, and I'm just going to – I'm now very happy with that idea. I'm going to write a column about it, um, you know. Okay, I, it's formulating as we speak. 
Excellent, Alan. I'm looking forward to reading it. I can feel a column coming on. I've got another 82 pages like your last (laughs) one. Um, Bruce is inspired by suggestions that we should all get out there as Money Cafe listeners and attend AGMs and has attended quite a few in the past few weeks and found it quite enjoyable and interesting. But then he was getting stuck into the RACQ for only making $5 million from its banking division. And I will say that the RACQ is one of the 10 biggest mutuals left in Australia. They own uh, insurance as well as uh, they're, quite imba- they're quite annoyed that the RACV is in there owning Noosa Resorts and Gold Coast Resorts because they're so rich. And RACQ have had the Southerners come into their home patch and spend a couple of hundred million dollars. I don't know the RACV resorts. owns resorts in Noosa and Gold yeah, Coast. They, they, my wife was on the board at the time. They, they bought diamonds in the rubble after the GFC. They picked up the Noosa resort uh, for $70 million when the, the developer had spent 200 And they picked up Twin Waters uh, – no, um, not Twin Waters uh, – Royal Pines – which is a massive land bank for um, $70 million when it had previously changed hands for a couple of hundred million. So great example of contrarian long-term property investing. Anyway, Bruce, RACQ is doing a good job offering banking products to their members, and if they're making $5 million a year, Bruce, they're doing well. So stop complaining. But keep attending AGMs. It's very good. Marek says, I once again read about the super sweet spot, and it really got me thinking. Basically, a couple with a super balance – of just over 400k at 67 have a higher income than a couple with 1.2 million thanks to the taper rate and part pension. This seems a real disincentive to slog away to be self-funded in retirement. What are your thoughts? Thanks for a great show. Now listen, is that right? 400k to 1.2 million? 400k is making more than someone with 1.2 million? Is oh, that right? Well, did, you, did you figure that out? No, look, the point that it tapers is the point that Marek, Marek is make, making. So you mean 80, the pension tapers? 80, yeah, 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 correct. The pension tapers. The richer you are, the less your pension is. Yeah, yeah, the that's way it right. Works. But, but 80% of Australians over the age of 67 are still on the government teat for some sort of pension. So this whole thing about $3 trillion of super is going to make people independent, the fact that we've only got 20% of the over 67s totally free of government subsidy says it yeah, well hasn't worked I think and it's the pension system is too generous and it no, should an taper more quickly. It's an interesting point because the whole point about the superannuation was that at some point we wouldn't be able to afford the pension, right? But so far we're affording it and there's no sign of the government coming it back. And it's a massive disincentive because if you're suddenly going to lose the pension uh, because you, you've you got too many assets, you give your assets to your kids or you don't but save you know more and you just go on the government teat for the rest of your the life. The government's going to announce the MIFO, the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook, next week or the week after, and it's going to show a surplus, right? And so there's no incentive to cut back the pension because they've got a surplus. They're fine. Yeah, but I I, yeah, I think there's a very strong argument about inequity between the oldies with their mortgage-free properties and the youngsters battling with mortgages and private school fees and all sorts of stuff. So anything which winds back the largesse for the over-67s, I think is a fair policy and we should explore that. Now, Jason... That's a long one. Yeah, we'll just do a brief. Jason is a property investor in Mandurah, WA. He buys, he flips, he runs some Airbnbs, he's got some long-term rentals and he's basically saying that the cost of... He's a tycoon. Jason's a tycoon. He's a very successful property investor but he's basically saying that the the cost of construction now is so high that it, it makes more sense to buy an existing property where he is in Perth 
um, because construction costs have just uh, has gone through the roof. And so the reason there is not enough building uh, going on is because it's just uneconomic to actually build new stock even with the current prices that yeah, well, because land prices are too high as well. There was a question last night at the launch of this quarterly essay who was on about that, and I think it's absolutely true. Um, construction costs are a real issue. Well, there's a few things in there, like the CFMEU. So, so unions, if you've, got a, if you've got a lift, you've got to put a lift in, then construction costs with the unions go up 30%. The fact that like the, the Victorian government haven't approved a new quarry in Victoria for decades near Melbourne... That's driving up the cost, the cost of construction. So the, I reckon they really should do a proper investigation of the supply side challenges. Um, you know, importing labour, importing more skills, uh, work practices, uh, quarries, you name it. There's a whole range of, in, of factors in there. Well, let's skip to Sharon. Yeah, do Sharon. I was just reading about ideas to boycott Coles and Woolies. The idea that they are the wolves and that Aldi is the golden supermarket at the moment. What do you think of this? And what were the long-term effects from an economic point of view? Well, Sharon, I don't think you're going to be able to move the dial and really put one across the bowels of Coles and Woolies by just shopping at Aldi yourself. But look, it is unfortunate that Australia has the most concentrated supermarket in the world. When Franklin's fell in 2003, the ACCC should never have allowed Coles and Woolies to put pick the eyes out of the best Franklin stores. Thank God for Audi for providing some competition. But, uh, you know, look at the Woolies share price versus the house price. Since 2003, when Franklin's fell over, Woolies shares were at about five bucks. Now, if you factor in Endeavour Group, they're probably closer to 50. And they are gouging consumers, ripping off farmers. And I agree that there should be more pressure on them. And I'm glad they're getting, they're offering all these price cuts at the moment. But I don't think a consumer boycott is going to work. Just, just shop no, it's, conveniently it's at, at, at your most uh, good I, value I, place. I remember when um, uh, a few years ago there was a lot of talk that Coles and Woolies were in trouble because of Aldi, because of Costco, and the other German one. What was the other German one? Little, a little. Oh, was, yeah. They were all coming in, and you know there's it's, going to be hypermarkets opening it's up. Like and the they're lock, all going to take it's like the Loch Ness monster. But it disruptors to banks are the same. The big four banks are in trouble from buy now, pay later. They're fine. The duopoly is fine. It, no, it's right. It Qantas never, is fine. We're a nation happens. of monopolists and oligopolists, and they're always fine. They don't get disrupted into yeah into penury. Now, Jay has just bought their first home in Sydney, uh, paid over the median price for a house in Sydney, a townhouse, and uh, delayed starting a family to save up for a deposit, and now the family is pregnant, but Jay's question is whether the ridiculous house prices is, is going to have an effect on the birth rate, because young people just can't afford to get into the housing market and have kids, and what do you reckon, Mr. Property Guru, is that... Right, is the property price boom dropping down the yeah, birth yeah, rate? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, the other factor in that is that um, uh, uh, women often want to, if not most of the time, want to try and start at least develop a career, establish their career before they start taking maternity leave because you know maternity leave is such a downer on your career. So they want to get going first and establish themselves. So uh, you know, I mean, uh, my wife. So we had a, my dad was 25 when we had our first child and my mum was 22 and she had her first child. Um, those kind of things, nowadays nobody's really thinking about having children until they're in their 30s. Mm. Um, yeah, well, well Paula was I think that's 34 I think when we had our first and, and we call our third one 
the, the 20 kilometre child because we had to move 20 kilometres from the CB, CBD where we could find a five-bedroom house that we could afford because uh, once you have three kids, it's very hard to live in the inner city. You can't Could've. live in an apartment. You can't live with your parents. So you need, you need to go a long way out to find well, a five-bedroom you know, house. But, that's, but you can get the kids to share bedrooms, you know. They don't, the kids don't have to have, all of them have one, their own bedroom. Crikey. Yeah, good, luck, good luck with that one, Alan. <laughs> good luck with that one. You won't sell that anywhere. Now, Marty says, I've recently been looking into low-risk Aussie government bond ETFs and found that some have short-term or even long-term negative returns. How is this possible, says Marty? For example, Better Shares has a six-month return of negative 5.7%. Well, the answer, Marty, is that when interest rates go up, the market value of bonds go down. That is the, that's the law of, you know, if you've got a fixed-price fixed coupon bond. So there has been a bit of a bond route globally because central banks around the world have jacked up interest rates so much that this has driven bond prices down. So as an asset class, bonds have not been something good to be in and this affects ETFs like everyone else and that's why you've got ETFs showing negative returns. So there's something I wanted wanted to raise this with you, Stephen. I think that there's a major flaw in the system, which is that um, we, we measure and talk about shares by their price. Right, we talk about BHP, whatever it is, thirty-four dollars, or, and and we talk about share prices, but with bonds, we talk about the yield. We don't talk about the price. I just think that's a. I think it's confusing to people, and no wonder nobody wants to invest in bonds because who the hell knows what the price is? I think we should be talking about bonds by the price. Yes, I, I agree, and and. The only serious bond investing that retail investors do is bank hybrids. And because it's a hybrid, they rort it by getting into the franking credits rort. And so that makes bank hybrids a viable investment. And most of them are floating rate. So they get protected from a bond price route because when the federal government, when the Reserve Bank puts up interest rates, then up goes your return as an owner of a Commonwealth Bank or NAB hybrid. So if the trick is if you're buying bonds, you want to ideally buy a floating rate bond where you'll get protection when rates go up. But then again, when rates go down, your returns will also go crashing down as well because they follow the central bank uh, price. Now, Anonymous, we're just going to treat this one as a comment. So in terms of where you get free advice, apart from listening to the Money Cafe, uh, general advice, of course, uh, ASIC, Anonymous, who works for Services Australia, makes the point that at Services Australia, which is a federal government body, they have what's called Financial Information Service Officers, or FISOs, which maybe is a bit like FIFOs, the fly and fly-out workers, who Anonymous recommends and says they do provide elementary advice and helpful information on a person's circumstances. So there you go, folks. You can ring up Services Australia and ask to speak to a financial information service officer and see how you go. They won't charge you. As long as you've got two days to wait on the phone. Well, come on. You're such a cynic, Alan. I mean, really, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, look, we've given you a plug, Services Australia. I hope your service is good because uh, you're about to get a few calls. There's absolutely no way that they're going to answer the phone, uh, uh, you know, 
with any kind of alacrity, let's, let's put it that way. Another, another thing we can take as a comment from Chris. On the show last week, it was stated that when workers get a pay rise, a large chunk is taken in tax. This is true but misleading. Pay rises are paid on gross salary and so is tax. But because the relativity stay roughly the same, the impact on net pay is also relative. So if you get a pay rise of 4%, your net pay will also go up by 4%. It might be slightly under 4% because of the progressive tax system, but for most workers, it will make stuff all difference. At the end of the day, workers look at the impact on their net pay and they'll get pretty close to the full percentage increase of a wage rise. Good point, Chris. Thank you. Yep, that's absolutely right. And we'll finish off with Bart, who is reigniting the Stage 3 tax cuts question and says there seems to be once again pushback against Stage 3, which Alan is a vocal opponent of. And Bart's question is that the Stage 3 tax cuts could be argued to be inflationary, given they'll provide additional funds for discretionary spending to higher income brackets. Given a hypothetical choice, would you scrap these if it meant no further interest rates or earlier cuts by the RBA. And I will say, Bart, we can't scrap them because one, the political integrity of making a promise is important. And two, income tax payments have gone up 15% in the last 12 months. It's at 320 billion. People are soaring through the tax brackets as their income goes up. This is why they get into negative gearing because we are such a punitively high tax country. For workers, the average battling CEO loses 50 cents in every dollar of extra bonus they get. So just that we're in surplus, put the tax cuts through and um, and just thank the lucky stars that the taxpayers are paying $320 billion a year at the moment in income tax to Canberra. That is ridiculously high. That is all just complete rubbish, Stephen. We are not a high-taxing we're not a high-taxing country. And the whole point of a pro- progressive tax system is as you get pay rises, as your pay increases, uh, so should your tax rate. That's the whole point but of it. It's not indexed. No, that's right. So it should be indexed. Correct. I agree. So this, and we shouldn't this pay- is just belated indexation, this stage three tax cuts. That's all it is. Uh, well, Every, no, you've got to keep cutting tax rates to deal with bracket because there's no indexation. Cuts, the stage three tax cuts are too skewed towards rich people getting paid too much. So they so they they should keep the amount the same of the stage three, stage three tax cuts and just shift the way it's uh, structured so that it's more um, less on rich, less rich people getting paid, uh, tax cuts and more poor people, in my opinion. I mean, cause, because, look, come on. It was designed, the whole thing was designed by the coalition and they were looking after their mates. Such as if you. you went to Hong you, Kong, Alan, Stephen, you'd be paying former, 15%. Former advisor Former Jeff, liberal staffer. For, yeah. Former liberal staffer. Our tax rates are comparatively high. Our GST is comparatively low. And uh, I think I'm sick of all this socialist, you know, we don't tax enough. By world standards, we are a very high tax country, both at the corporate level and the income tax level. And we don't do things like GST nearly as much as we should be doing. Well, I'm very sorry you're getting the last word on that, Stephen, well, you, because it's absolute crap. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. Thank God. (laughs) Send your question. We'll answer it together. Email it to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Till then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, uh, but I now work for Intelligent Investor, which has absorbed the Eureka Report, swallowed it whole... (laughs) Finance presenter on ABC News, columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Mayne. Hopefully a continuing <laughs> contributor at The Intelligent Investor will hopefully see you in a fortnight. 